0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit LCEF.org for more information. On this Monday, November 18th, we are studying Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. The fourth of Amos's visions is a basket of summer fruit. The time is ripe for the judgment of God's people, Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Pleasure to be here. Pastor Roth, that we get going today, help us out with some context in the book of Amos that's going to be helpful to us to dig into this fourth vision that Amos has.
1: Sure. So I think, I'm sure y'all have talked quite a bit about uh, Amos as, as who he is, and uh, but it never hurts to go back and just reorient ourselves to who the author of this uh, prophetic work is. Anyway, Amos, of course, is from Tacoa. Um, and that's just about six miles south of Bethlehem, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, and so he's from Judah. And it's interesting, he was a shepherd who was called out of Judah to preach to Israel, the northern kingdom, and he comes as a sort of foreigner, and then he gets rejected by the powers that be. I was just wondering if that sounded at
0: all familiar. It, it does sound a little bit familiar. Who, who should we be thinking of, Pastor Roth?
1: Um, a Standard Sunday school answer would be Jesus.
0: Jesus. Yeah. So where do we see, I mean, how, how is Jesus a foreigner like Amos sent to preach to those who aren't going to listen to him?
1: Well, I mean, we're told by St. John that he came to his own and his own knew him not. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was certainly treated as an outsider uh, by the insiders uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Jewish leadership of his day. So this is just fundamentally a prophetic pattern and a Christological pattern, and Christ is the greatest of the prophets, and so he's going to, his life is uh, going to follow the pattern of the prophets, or maybe it would be better to even say that all the, prophetic, all the prophets uh, had the pattern of uh, suffering and rejection uh, because they were ultimately types of the Christ who would come.
0: And we've just seen that rejection within the book yep. of Amos at the end of chapter seven. Right. Amos has this confrontation with with Amaziah the priest. And so he's he's just been rejected, just as, as Christ is rejected in the New Testament as that fulfillment of all these prophetic types. Other other thoughts on the context of Amos that'll that'll be helpful to us?
1: Well, I really think it's interesting that with this prophetic pattern of of rejection, um, you know, Amos is not quoted in the New Testament a lot but uh, one of the places it is quoted is in Stephen's uh, sermon before the Jews uh, in Acts chapter 7. And he quotes Amos chapter 5 not long before he says these words, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered.
0: Uh, one of the things that I, I think is interesting about that quote that Stephen has there from, from Acts chapter 7 is, is what he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And as we've been going through the book of Amos, there's not been, it would seem, a lot of talk of the coming of the righteous one, rather more a lot of talk of coming of judgment. And and yet Stephen reminds us that the reason that the prophets are persecuted ultimately is their preaching of Christ as Savior.
1: Right. Yeah. And, but law and gospel always go together. And, Mm. you know, Luther points out that of all the prophets, uh, Amos probably has more law than um, almost any other one of them. And he kind of holds on to the gospel to the end. Mm. So, Not necessarily the way I'd suggest uh, our Lutheran preachers approach a sermon outline, you know, 95% judgment, followed by just a little smidgen of gospel at the end. But uh, Amos had a very specific mission, and he was, of course, led by the Holy Spirit to preach the way he did
0: all of the lutheran pastors that have preceded you in this study have been quick to point out that amos chapter 9 is coming that the yeah, gospel is yeah. coming right we all we all want to get there because because it is important and yet at the same time to let the law do its work which certainly amos is is doing that here and it it's very needed in the context that he's preaching in and probably there's quite a few similarities to our context as well oh
1: absolutely
0: and i mean our lord
1: in matthew 5 the beatitudes just basically spells out the pattern for the christian life Uh, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what's striking about this is this is a blessed way. This is something we're to rejoice and be glad in. And it pains our old sinful flesh, which wants nothing but health and prosperity and temporal blessing, but this is the theology of the cross, that we recognize in our sufferings and persecutions a reflection of the Christ-like life.
0: Mm, so the, the Christ-like life is the one that Amos is exemplifying here in his preaching of God's Word. His, Along with
1: all the other prophets. Yeah. And,
0: and so his faithfulness to God's Word, despite the persecution that it earns him, this is, this is the, the right way, the way that Amos calls us to, the way the Lord's Word calls us to, rather than the opposite way, which is the way the, the people of Israel are going during this time.
1: Absolutely. And it's also very important to note, Amos didn't choose this life. Mm. The Lord chooses us and uh, chooses how he's going to work with us, but it's always going to be good for our sanctification.
0: Indeed. So, so Pastor Roth, in terms of the, the context that Amos is, is preaching in, we've talked about this is a very prosperous time for the people of Israel, the reign of Jeroboam II. He's expanded the borders of, of Israel, and it would seem that this is a time of great prosperity, of God's great blessing upon the people of Israel. But Amos comes along announcing the exact opposite, what are some of the similarities that we see to our world today? Perhaps,
1: well, um, it's striking that times of prosperity um, also bring about decadence, moral degeneracy, social ills, uh, religious liberalization, syncretism, and I just think Amos is extremely timely because uh, as men, as wonderful as the blessings we enjoy in the West are. Um, they can actually cause us to forget God and to turn away from his way and seek out our own way.
0: I've I've wondered this to myself in the past. I wanna see what you think, Pastor Roth. In in the book of Job, you have the temptation for Job to deny God when everything is taken away from him. And it seems that in the book of Amos and in our day, the exact opposite is true. It's still a temptation, but it's a temptation not because everything's been taken away from us, but a temptation to forget God because everything's been given to us. Right.
1: Yeah, I think it's the prayer in either the Psalms or Proverbs. You know, don't give me too much lest I forget you. Don't give me too little lest I grumble against you. So I think moderation is always the thing to pray for.
0: The The lonely way, as Herman Sasa might <laughs> right. Right term it, right? Yeah. So, Pastor Roth, any more introductory comments before we start looking at the the text before us today? Well, I just wanted
1: to mention one thing from 2 Kings 14, which does discuss briefly the reign of Jeroboam. And it says that uh, the, the Lord actually is the one, as he spoke by the servant Jonah, he's the one who actually brought about the expansion of the borders. And this was something necessary as a kind of a buffer against the nations around him for at least that period of time. But then it says the Lord had, said that, had, had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, Jeroboam is introduced as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord and uh, continued the sins of the previous kings, uh, leading to idolatry. So we can see, again, the Lord working even through wicked men to bring about his good purposes to preserve his remnant. Another pattern that, of course, holds straight through the New Testament, thinking of the uh, high priest prophesying that Jesus... You know, let's let, we need to get rid of this guy so that uh uh you know the whole nation won't be destroyed. And St. John says, Well, he was actually speaking prophetically because he was going to save the whole world through this
0: wicked deed. So in the midst of this wickedness, the Lord is still at work, always at work preserving the remnant of his people, getting to raising up the fallen booth of David, which Amos is going to preach at, at the end of this book. So so always working towards the salvation of of his people, the keeping of the promise from Genesis chapter 3 of bringing the seed into the world. So with that, let's go ahead and take a look at the text that we've got before us today. This again is Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Wow. Lots of good news, Pastor Apple. A lot of good news. That's that is rough. That's This is just hard to read. I've, we, we've got some folks here in, in Smithville who listen to the program regularly, and, and, and they're they were listening to, to chapters four and five and saying, "Pastor, this is this is really hard." And, and I said, "Yeah, it, it gets worse." And and this this really is, I, I think, the the beginning of the climax of the end that, that we're starting to see here. Uh, Pastor Roth, help us. This again is the the fourth vision. Mm-hmm. So so, what are some similarities from the visions that have come before? What are some differences as is pushing us forward toward the end of Amos?
1: Yeah. So the first two visions, um, basically he had interceded on behalf of the people and the Lord had relented from, um, causing the disaster. So he got off to a sort of promising start, I guess, humanly speaking, he, maybe he was thinking, wow, things are, things are looking up. Maybe I'm going to get to go back home to Tacoa in time for the harvest or something. And, uh, but, um, what we see is that, uh, the, the unbelief and idolatry of the people is too strong. And, uh, so the Lord, has now reached the breaking point. The time for favor and the day of salvation is ended for the, for the northern kingdom. And so we see a sharp difference between those first two visions and then the last three, um, whereas the Lord relented in the visions of the locusts and the fire. The plumb line, the basket of the summer fruit, and Yah- Yahweh standing beside the altar show judgment coming. And there are connections, even between the third and fourth visions, with the first and second, because they they do all deal with forgiveness, except it's the opposite. Whereas in the first two, the Lord does pass over their sins. Now the Lord is going to say, I will never forgive them. Some of the harshest words
0: you might ever hear come from our Lord's lips. So, and and between the third and fourth visions stands that confrontation, the, the showdown at the OK Corral right. between Amos and Amaziah. And it seems that's a bit of a turning point here in the book of Amos. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Amaziah said to Amos, "Oh, seer, go flee to the land of Judah and eat bread there, prophesy there. Never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Whose oh. sanctuary? Not the Lord's, oh. the king's. Oh. So we see the powers that be in the priestly caste uh, claiming the church, as it were, for their own. And, you know, you, we see this today, right? Mm. Oh, that's my church. I built this church. Mm. You can't tell us what to do with that church. Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus is the one who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Mm. Uh, Luther liked to say that the uh, the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper, not the Christian Supper. Right. It's not something we get to tinker with and call the shots on. It's his. It's actually his gift. And if we receive it as a gift, then we're not going to want to change it.
0: Mm. So this this despisal then that that Amos has experienced from Amaziah perhaps influences the way that he responds to the Lord's visions. And we we talked a little bit about this with the third vision which came before that showdown that he has with Amaziah. How Amos doesn't intercede here for the people. He doesn't pray, "Oh Lord, please forgive." And and as a pastor, this is something I struggle with a little bit because at what point do you do you stop interceding? For the people that you're you're preaching for, or preaching to. Well,
1: I think pastorally, first of all, we have to recognize that we're not Amos, and he's operating in a unique historical circumstance. I mean, it's not like the Lord shows up in my study on any given moment and shows me a basket of fruit and says, "Hey, look at this," and then he explains to me what it means. So I think that there's just a fundamentally different circumstance here, and um, you know, Jesus con- is constantly saying that we should always pray and never lose mm. heart, never give up, pray without ceasing. So I think that until the moment uh, a recalcitrant uh, uh, unbeliever or uh, a stubborn member who's straying or something like that, until that moment that person has perished, we should continue to intercede on their behalf.
0: So it's the unique prophetic office that Amos holds. That's the reason that he intercedes in the first two and then here is silent. And lets the Lord speak? Well, or else the Lord just doesn't even give him a chance to speak. Mm. I mean, you know, when the Lord
1: speaks, we close our mouths and listen. And I think that, you know, we could have almost imagined maybe Amos uh, trying to chime in here and pipe up to the Lord and say, but, 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 but. And the Lord has made up his mind at this point.
0: Mm. Yes, he has. We, we saw that in the third vision, and it only gets gr- it's only greater than here in the fourth. And and the image that the Lord shows, this vision, is one that Amos probably would have been familiar with. He's got a basket of summer fruit. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, fruit of the Month Club, I'm sure Amos was a member of, right? I think he was a,
0: a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore oh, figs, right, he said. Oh, right. right, Sorry, yeah. I got a little
1: confused. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. He was, uh, I mean, there's the Old Testament is nothing if not earthy and agricultural, and I think that, to some extent, makes it a little bit more unapproachable for some of us. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the country, um, but for city slickers, you know, uh, they might not have a lot of experience with herds and
0: fruit. Uh, so, what is what is the significance then of this basket of summer fruit? What what is Amos seeing? Well, he doesn't know,
1: and so really, the Lord has to pretty much tell him. And explain to him what
0: he's seeing. Sure, but but I mean, what you know, the just the the language there. Summer fruit. I mean, I don't know, what what are summer fruit around here? And in, in our part, I think of Fredericksburg peaches. That's that's yeah. summer fruit, right? Right. So so the idea of summer fruit, though, this is fruit that's ready to be harvested. These are some of the the things that we should be thinking about. No, well, it's fruit that's already been harvested. Okay,
1: so uh, we probably should be thinking of figs here. That was one of the main staples. And, uh, I think that, that, that probably is the, uh, we'll, which we'll get to in a minute talking a little bit about the fig tree in the New Testament and that yeah. imagery. But, uh, yeah, I, I think figs, um, one thing to note about it is that once the fruits already been picked and is in the basket, mm. well, something happens to the fruit pretty quickly. Uh, that mm. process of the bacteria attacking it and it begins to decay. And given that they didn't have refrigeration, um, well, there's no way to preserve the figs. I think I'm sure they could dry them, but here sure. we we have a a, fre- a, a ripe basket of, of figs, let's say, and it's indicating that it's going to perish very soon. Okay,
0: and there's there's some play on words here in the Hebrew, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the uh,
1: the word for end when it says the end is coming upon my people is kets, and that and that sounds in Hebrew very much like the word for summer fruit, kaiets. Oh. So. You know, puns are almost always untranslatable. You can't bring them from one language into the other. So that's one of those things that gets lost in translation. And so because end and fruit are connected here, that means that the political end of northern Israel would come about because Yahweh would no longer overlook their transgressions.
0: So one way we might might try to see it say it in English would be a basket of ripe fruit and then we do have the english idiom the time is ripe or something sure. like that. Yeah. That that could be a, a... Yeah, because it's about to expire. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, let's 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 talk about this then. What what is, you know, you you just mentioned a basket of summer fruit, the end is near. What what is the end? Is it only that destruction that's coming in 722 BC with the Assyrians? Is that what he's primarily talking about or is there more going on here?
1: Well, it certainly is part of what he's talking about. But you don't get the language of the end or the day of the Lord in the Bible without it referring to multiple things, Um, including the uh, the end that occurs when uh, Christ suffers on the cross and cries out to Telestai, it has been finished. Mm. So there's a a, a, the day of the Lord occurs there. That's an end to uh, the 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 sin in the sense of our guilt for individual sins and you know in that in that moment the, the only sin really becomes unbelief. Mm. But uh, so there's that end, uh, but then there's also the end of the world. Uh, the New Testament is again and again picks up on the language of the end and the day of the Lord being pointing forward to the last judgment. Mm. So you know we have um, we should be thinking about the end of the northern kingdom, the end of the southern kingdom. The uh, destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 A.D., which really ends the, the Hebrew cult and transforms Judaism in a way that it is pretty much indistinguishable from what it today, it's indistinguishable from what it was then, because it doesn't have a sacrificial system. But ultimately, we want to think about the end of the world, the last day, judgment day.
0: Okay, so as we read Amos here, then we're going to be able to take this and, and apply it still to us. And perhaps a good way to, to start is this image of fruit. Because the Scriptures do make use of this image in many ways, both in the negative way, as, as we've got here in the text, but also in the positive way as well. So how do we see the image of fruit come up in a positive sense in the Scriptures for our lives as Christians?
1: I mean, just think back to the garden. First of all, the Lord gave them every fruit of every tree except for the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, the tree of life is the thing that they would have eaten from and have, would have lived forever. Um, so, and of course throughout the old Testament fruit is a very positive thing. And then in the new Testament fruit, the fruits of the spirit, faith, hope, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So, uh, Jesus, uh, talks about the bad tree bearing bad fruit, but the good tree bears good fruit. He makes us good trees so that we are fruitful. Oh. Oh, I mean, if you want to use the language of fruitfulness, be fruitful and multiply. Right. Right. So all that language of, of, uh, ripening and growth and fruitfulness is uh, very positive throughout the scriptures. So it's a striking image then when it becomes um, a very negative thing here. It's almost surprising.
0: Hmm. But before we go there, I I want to draw that a little bit more. So I think if we think about our lives as Christians in the positive sense with the image of fruit, the place to start is where you brought up where Jesus says, what a good tree bears and what a bad tree bears right so the starting place for us as christians when it comes to bearing fruit is that christ makes us a good tree absolutely so then how does i mean how does that happen and how does that progress from there give us give us that sure process i guess i
1: mean just think. think about how uh, the gift of baptism, the, among the many gifts of baptism, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who produces the fruits in our lives. So apart from uh, our being engrafted into Christ Jesus, being part of the vine—I'm the vine, you're the branches—he um, says we can't be fruitful without our connection to Him. So it starts with our baptism into Christ Jesus. And then we receive sap through His Word, and He produces fruitfulness in us. Um, Obviously, the Lord's Supper makes use of the fruit of the vine, and through Christ's forgiveness and indwelling in us through the Holy Sacrament, uh, we we know that He's going to produce good things in our lives through that as well. So our connection to Christ is what makes us good trees, Mm. our justification, and then in our sanctification, He produces good fruits in us.
0: Okay. And so we should, I mean, we should, those good works do come forth from Christians, right? I mean, having feared, loved, and trusted in God above all things, according to that gift that's been given then, the other works of the first table and the works of the second table come forth in our lives. This is the good fruit that we're talking about.
1: That's right. And obviously we're not trees or Right. I mean, so we are, we are sentient beings. We're thinking beings. And so the law of God is given to instruct us in what sort of good works we are to do, but we should always recognize that they are fruits of God's work in us. And we can't really take credit for them. They're all gifts of grace. Um, I mean, Paul says that our, even our faith is a gift. Mm. So, uh, the, um, so, p- Christian pastors are not uh, supposed to be fruit inspectors. We're not supposed to be going around and determining the appropriate level of fruitfulness in the lives of our church members. Obviously, when we see bad fruits of impenitence, those are things that we have to call people to repentance on. And um, indeed, we should urge the good works, the good fruits. But at the same time, there's no. Um, the scripture never says exactly how many fruits each individual is going to produce. Mm. It is completely God's work, God's gift. And, and the fact is, given that all of our good works are um, related to uh, the first commandment, there are a whole lot of good works that we do that are not ever even noticed, that a pastor or another Christian could ever never even see.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think the emphasis that you have there on good works being God's gift All of this is God's doing is something we really need to keep in mind. And and as you were talking, I'm reminded of the the song that Isaiah has in chapter 5, where he talks about Israel as a vineyard, and the Lord is the one who planted it. And I'm here in Isaiah 5, this is verse 2, describing how the Lord worked in that vineyard. It says, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. The Lord did all of that. This was all his work. And of course, the the tragic conclusion of, of that song that, that begins, and this is very much related to what Amos gets at, is that the Lord looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. Right. But so our our fruit as Christians, these good works that we do, all of this is God's work from beginning to end. This is the the positive positive side. Pastor Rob, we have just a minute left to kind of tie a bow on that thought.
1: Yeah, it's um, in um, the hymn, If uh, Your Beloved Son O God Had Not to Earth Descended. um, One of the final stanzas says, um, O Holy Spirit, fount of grace, the good in me to thee I trace. Mm. Um, I mean, I can take credit for every rotten thing that I've ever produced, but I can say with certainty that anything good that's come from me is uh, a complete gift of God, and that's what pa- St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, as well when he says, uh, you know, it was the grace of God working through me. It wasn't
0: me. And so our fruit that we bear is actually God's fruit. He is doing these works in us through us by the work of his spirit. That's what he was looking for for from his people, Israel. But instead, there's this basket of rotten ripe fruit. We'll explore that negative side of the image on the other side of the break, which we're going to take right now. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, November 18th, we are looking at Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 with Pastor Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we had explored the positive image of fruit in the New Test the Old and New Testaments that the Lord works in us and through us. This is entirely his work to bring us to faith, to produce these good works in us as his people. It's all his doing. Amos uses the image of fruit here, or he's shown the image of fruit in a negative sense. So, how does how did this happen for the people of Israel? what What's going on? What has happened to them such that what Amos sees is a basket of ripe and even rotten fruit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's. Uh, you, I'm sure you can picture fruit that you've had uh, in the, your fruit basket in the house, uh, uh, maybe that you purchased when it was a little bit on the green side, and so it feels like it's going to take forever for it to ripen and so we do see, uh, to some extent, that happening to Israel. It takes them a long time to kind of get their heads on straight for for a couple of periods of their time. But then, when the uh, when the ripening occurs, the uh, the overripening or even rottening process happens pretty quickly, and it's irreversible. You know, um, I always comment that uh, you can't unspoil fruit, and can't unspoil kids either. Maybe. <laughs> no, I don't want to be hopeless on that but that's right that's right but yeah. it's a good warning not to spoil in the sense of spoil kids in a
0: bad way right sure so I mean the image of, of ripe fruit is a, a very good one because right. as you said once once that fruit has gone past that stage there's there's nothing you can nope. do about it um you know I mean I I think I put a, a couple of bananas in the freezer today that had gotten over overripe mm-hmm. to use later but that's that's kind of beside the point right, right. those those things are, are past gone. So how did that happen for Israel?
1: Oh, idolatry. Mm. That's what it always comes back to. First commandment, right? And we're told uh, that Jeroboam had continued the same sins uh, among the people as, as his fathers had. And Again and again, that's what the Lord judges the people for. Mm-hmm.
0: We've we've seen in Amos how he he preaches against those those twin things, idolatry and injustice. Right, two, two I words, right? But they they go together.
1: Well, uh, unjust, injustice is
0: simply the bad fruit that flows from idolatry. Right, right. So it is that original sin of Jeroboam the first, when he set up those golden calves, that has not ever been repented of, that has continued to do precisely this ripening and and rotten process that's gone on in the people of Israel. The idolatry that's continued has only led to those injustices. And so the Lord is calling them out for both of them in the book of Amos. And and now that Amos has had this confrontation with Amaziah, and, and we've seen from the priest that there's not, if anybody should have repented, it should have been the priest. Once we've seen from him, now here's the image, the fruit is past gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the, the tree is bad at this point so yeah yeah and so uh it this is uh this basket then becomes a sign of the end for israel the northern kingdom and um uh, i think that it also is interesting to to just dis- to point out that that jesus brings up an image related to the uh the fig tree in the new testament also to point to the end as a warning for us
0: so how, do, how does that work pastor roth
1: Well, Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about—first of all, he gives an introduction saying that the Son of Man's going to appear, the the sun's going to be darkened, the moon's not going to give light, and uh, he's going to send out the angels to gather in the elect from the four winds. And then he says, "...from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates." obviously this is a different image because it's dealing with the true the tree and leaves but it's uh, striking that this this language appears in in both places uh, to get us to focus on the end coming and proper preparation
0: okay what is the proper repra- proper
1: preparation uh, the proper preparation is always repentance and trust
0: in the lord's forgiveness hmm. And that's exactly what the people of Israel have not done in the days of Amos. Absolutely. So the Lord says, the end has come upon my people Israel. The fruit is ripe. The time is ripe. And, and then he says uh, in a repeat of what he said in the third vision, I will never again pass by them. So the end is coming because the Lord is not going to forgive them anymore. That
1: is exactly what's going to happen here. Now, this is not an absolute statement of God's never going to forgive any of his people again. And in fact, you know, if you think about it on the ground level, uh, I'm sure that if the people um, who were suffering persecution from the Assyrians uh, under the Lord's permission uh, cried out to him and asked for forgiveness, it's not that they would be condemned to hell. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, they must suffer those consequences, so the Lord is not going to withhold the consequences of their sin any longer. Uh,
0: that's a, I think that's a helpful way of looking at it, because this is a, a rather terrifying thing to hear from the Lord, that He will not forgive their sins anymore, and, and one that causes probably many Christian consciences some angst as to, how, how do I know if, if the Lord's going to utter such things to me?
1: Absolutely. Uh, but the the Lord gave us the Lord's Prayer for a very good reason, and the fifth petition is, forgive us our trespasses. And so that is something that we always have with us. We are always uh, uh, encouraged by the Lord to call upon Him in the day of trouble and to cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Forgive me, O Lord. And we know that because of His promises in Christ Jesus, He always will
0: answer with an absolutely uh, positive yes. Mm. So when we're, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer in faith, as you're describing there, then this judgment from the Lord is not something that we should be afraid of?
1: Oh, no, um, certainly not. Um, faith is something that preserves us even through uh, the worst tribulations of this life. And so there is a sense in which, say, uh, we're in a hurricane or a tornado. Um, I mean, all all tragedies and um, events that like that that occur in this life are um, warnings and calls for us to repent. But if, in fact, we have faith in Christ, then uh, even though our body is destroyed, even though our home is destroyed, nonetheless, we know that we're in
0: His grace. So what what Amos is, is getting at, I mean, this is a hard question. I think it, it relates to <laughs> I think you and I, when we were studying Exodus, we, we dealt with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And and this is one that that we get asked as pastors, you know, how do I know that the Lord's not hardening my heart? How do I know that the Lord isn't going to say, I'm never going to forgive your sins anymore? How, how, do, we, how do we address that as
1: pastors? Maybe we respond by saying, well, if you're worried about whether or not the Lord's going to harden your heart, that's a good sign that he's not. Mm. And also that he doesn't ever say he's going to uh, harden the hearts of those who trust in him. Rather, it's those who persistently uh, continue to fight against his will and reject his word, as we go back to Exodus. Um, Pharaoh specifically outright rejects what the Lord says. We see the people here in Amos are rejecting the word of the Lord. Hmm. Because anytime you reject the Lord's prophet, you're rejecting his
0: word. Right. And and that I think is is an important thing to point out that by the we're in Amos chapter eight here, not in Amos chapter one, when the Lord is is saying this, and he's documented the various ways that he has attempted to get his people to repent. He has, in fact, passed by or passed over their sins in the past in the sense that he hasn't brought the Assyrian army upon them, but now the hour of midnight has come, to use Jesus' language from the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Right. The clock has struck 12, the time of judgment is at hand. But it's not like he didn't give him a chance.
1: That's true. I mean, he's he's been patient with him again and
0: again, just as he was patient with Pharaoh. Right. So the the pastoral answer then to these questions is going to depend on: is the person like Pharaoh, constantly rejecting the Lord's word, or is the person a troubled conscience who's who's fallen into sin and and is worried that the Lord will not receive him or her back? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So so there there we have that judgment from the Lord. The end. It's here, he's not going to forgive them. Tragic words, terrible words. and it only gets it only gets worse as Amos continues.
1: It does. yeah. and, and it's, it, uh, the ESV has the songs of the temple shall become wailings that day. Um, another, another translation is the singing women of the palace will wail on that day, mm-hmm. which actually takes us back to the king. Uh, and it's his, if it's his palace and he's built up this uh, edifice for himself and has rejected the way of the Lord, then it certainly is going to be cause for wailing because their self-constructed kingdom is coming crashing down.
0: So the like the the joyful sounds of a of a coronation are turned into the mournful cries of an assassination. Something like right. something like that is is the image that we're seeing there. And then at the end, and this is where we're probably gonna spend the majority of our time here now. So you, you've got these three just very stark sentences at the end. So many dead bodies is how it starts. Yeah. So many dead bodies,
1: carnage. Um, what we should see here is rotting corpses. And most of us can only relate to this experience, maybe regarding animals that we've come across, uh, a roadkill, uh, a mouse dying in our wall or something like that. And that's troubling enough, right? Mm. I mean, it turns our stomach. It's disgusting. Uh, but, I don't think a lot of us have seen what Amos is envisioning here. I think a lot of us can, um, because of the effectiveness of the modern funeral industry with embalming and creation, we don't actually see
0: how ugly and distressing death can be. Hmm. Perhaps the the closest that we can get for most of us is an image from a, like a world war two right. movie. Um, I, and I don't know this was a movie where I saw it, but a, a picture of, of the beaches from D day where you had all of the chalk outlines basically of, of where people would have died and that empty image now fill it with dead bodies. That's right. And everything that accompanies it. I mean, oh, I think, yeah. I think the use of, of corpses gets at, it it more effectively conveys the image that we should see in our minds here. That's this right. is this is death at its worst. Total destruction and, and all of the nastiness that comes with it.
1: That's right. Yeah, and the, one of the biggest elements of this would be smell too. Mm. I mean not that it's pleasant to dwell on at all, but no, that's the point smell, of it.
0: Smell, the flies. Yeah. I mean ev- everything, everything the about disease it. Disease that yes. occurs. Yes. This this is an awful end that the Lord is declaring for his people. And, and two, part of what makes the corpses so terrible here is that these are unburied
1: bodies. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you think back to the, the times of plague in the Middle Ages when they would just construct mass, or they'd dig out mass graves because there was nowhere else to go. You couldn't bury people. Um, and, and so, yeah, and, and leaving bodies unburied in the ancient world in general... Uh, not even just, we'll speak about the Old Testament in a minute, was uh, considered a sign of divine disapproval. Um, uh, This is, of course, pagan mythology, but the Greeks thought that the souls of unburied bodies couldn't even enter the afterlife until after they were buried. And you've got some great Greek tragedy related to that. Sophocles' Antigone revolves around the idea that Uh, Antigone's brother Polynices' body needs to be buried in spite of King Creon saying he couldn't. And so she actually defies this edict because she considers the divine law about burying bodies to be above human law, and she buries her brother and faces the consequences. So just from a cross-cultural perspective, you know, you see this going, this is just a very common thing. Mm. But then when we move to the Old Testament, Leviticus 26, for example, the Lord says, I will destroy if the people reject me. He says, I'll destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I'll lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. I'll not smell your pleasing aromas. There you see the sharp contrast between the sacrifices that are pleasing aromas to the Lord and then the, uh, the fruits of idolatry, which would be dead bodies cast upon the idols and creating this terrible stench.
0: Right. The the mention of idols there in Leviticus 26 is very telling because this is this is the end for all who trust in idols. This is where idols lead. That's is right. to a Nothingness. Scene of dead yeah. bodies rotting on on the ground. And and there's another reference about a where the Lord tells someone to leave a body unburied in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it it's a it's again a sign of the divine displeasure, showing that this man's cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Um, So uh, a way for the people to actually show um, uh, the curse was to leave the body hanging on the tree. The Lord is actually saying, don't defile the land by not doing that, but but people would—I mean, this is even like if you look at Old Westerns or something like that. They'd leave the guy hanging as a sort of sign of a curse against the people, mm. uh, to the people, an example. But the key factor here is that in Galatians 3, we're told that Christ rede- redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, "Christ uh, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. A reference back to Deuteronomy 21. So for our sins, we deserve to be strung up and left hanging uh, eternally. But in fact, Christ is hung upon the tree as an object of shame and scorn to men and as an object of cursing to God who pours out upon him his wrath against all of our guilt. And then he takes that
0: curse for us so that we are spared. The, the answer to the many dead bodies that are thrown everywhere is the one dead body of Christ who is God and man upon the cross taking this, per, this punishment, this curse for us. There's, there's the answer. And so we, we want to keep that image in our mind even as we think about the horror of this scene. And, and really, not only that, that these dead bodies literally there on the ground after the Assyrians come and wipe out the northern kingdom, but also seeing this idea of corpses, dead bodies, again, as a looking forward yeah. to the last day.
1: Yeah, Isaiah picks this up in at the very end of his uh, prophecy. He says, "...they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me." Again, that's clearly idolatry. And then he speaks these words that are actually quoted by our Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So we see uh, an image of hell, that uh, it's an eternal decomposition, an eternal um, being consumed, an eternal fire. And uh, so the the worst thing we could envision in this world, just rotting corpses, is a vision used of hell which is absolutely terrifying.
0: Yeah, this this again, I think, is, is where Amos really is. He's gearing up to the, the climax of right. his preaching of judgment. That's right. Here with this fourth vision.
1: I'd also point out that the Old Testament prophesied that the Lord's Messiah, his body would not see corruption. And so after becoming a curse for us on the cross, Christ's body doesn't experience decay in the tomb. And that's an indication of God's pleasure in his son. God's mm-hmm. wrath had been spent. And since he does nothing deserving of death, his body does not undergo the normal course of decay. And so while hell is to be eternally decaying, to be in Christ uh, is to be eternally preserved and healthy.
0: That's a, that, that provides a really strong image for, for the Christian burial. I right. think yeah that that when when Christ was buried his body did not see decay.
1: Yeah, and think about 1 Corinthians 15 right. about uh, w- you know this mortal body will put on immortality, this corruptible body will put on incorruptibility. Mm. So we are laid in the tomb and we will certainly decompose, but resurrection day means eternal incorruption, imperishability
0: because our bodies will be made like unto Christ's body. That's a that's a wonderful image compared to what what Amos has here uh, he, the prophet really shocks us into needing that I mean he, he shows us just how far we would go and how much we do need Christ
1: Well he gets there at the
0: end right right, right. <laughs> yeah he's, he's getting there in, in in the meantime though the the last word of verse three here is in English silence yeah
1: Wow. That's something that's uh, lacking in our houses, isn't it? With, Typically. Uh, with our children. Um, Typically. But, um, yeah, it's uh, striking. A very small little word. It's an interjection. And it can be translated to keep silence, hold your peace, uh, shut your mouth, I guess we
0: might say. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and in Hebrew, it's, it's almost an onomatopoeia. Yeah. Like Ha, ha, ha. Has, uh, hush, hush, yash. be quiet. Yeah. Right? So so why? I mean, why be quiet? Why silence?
1: Well, I suppose to go back to your earlier point at this, uh, Amos, uh, probably is chomping at the bit to get a word in edgewise here because he wants to make this vision go away. But to, in the, in the actual context of the vision, uh, the death has brought about a complete silence Mm. among the people Mm. and there's nothing left to be said, utter destruction decay. Mm. But, uh, it also uh, reminds us that the Lord has spoken his law here, and we have, we have nothing else to say. Right. Where does that come up in the New Testament? St. Paul in Romans 3 um, has gone through uh, systematically using the Psalms to dismantle any notion that we could be just by our works and to show that we're all corrupt, every last one of us. And then he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know, anytime someone accuses me of doing something wrong, the first thing I want to do is try to defend myself. And I, and sometimes that's right. In a, you know, uh, if I'm if I'm in the right, and right. you've accused me of something uh, falsely, but in a lot of cases, I'm guilty, and I'm just trying to justify myself. And when God's law is spoken into our ears and absolutely demolishes any hopes of righteousness in ourselves and calling us even wicked and evil, um, I want to talk back to him. I want to say, but, 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 Lord, no. Either I want to weigh my good works against my bad works or want to excuse why I did this or that, but the Lord simply speaks his law and says, your mouth needs to be shut
0: that's and that's exactly what we've we've seen in terms of the excuse making, the self justification. That's how Chapter Seven ends with Amaziah the priest. He's spent that entire conversation with Amos justifying himself, justifying the nation of Israel for its sins, and, and so at this point the Lord says, "Be quiet. There is yeah. there is nothing that you can say that will do anything about this." And and I think that's that's the point. Our our mouths have to be shut. Because whatever we say will only add sin upon sin and make it worse. The only way that justification will come is if the Lord does the speaking.
1: It's the Lord who spoke the world into existence. And uh, our speech doesn't accomplish anything, <laughs> right? right? I can stand over a dead body and exhort it all I like, but I can't make anything change. It is only divine speech that can bring about a change in reality. God is the one who actually gives life to the dead through his justifying word, and that's exactly what Paul is preparing for in Romans 3 when he talks about the law stopping our mouths. It's also exactly what Amos is preparing for in his prophetic speech, because he's driving forward to that prophecy of the Messiah coming. Hmm. So Paul continues then, nobody is going to be justified in God's sight by the law. In fact, what's the law given for? Knowledge of sin. We need that so that we can shut our mouths. But then Paul continues, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the Old Testament law, the Torah, and the prophets bear witness to it, and he says it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there's no I mean, there's the, the 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 subject of of both halves of that sentence is all, all have sinned, all are justified by Christ Jesus, completely as a gift through His atoning sacrifice, and that's what the silence is preparing us for, so that we can actually hear God not speak judgment, but rather speak grace and good news.
0: Pastor Roth, we have just under three minutes left here on the morning. Any points that we didn't get to that you'd like to bring out or help us? Wrap this up today, and and make sure that we see Christ here in these verses of Amos.
1: Right. So, um, thinking back to the the context of the kingdom, you know Solomon's kingdom had fallen apart thanks to the idolatry and corruption uh, that fostered all sorts of sin. The king had actually aligned himself with Egypt by marrying a daughter of Pharaoh. So, in a sense, Solomon took Israel back into bondage to Egypt. The people had been enslaved to other gods. And we see a similar um, historical context between Solomon's day and Jeroboam ben Joash, uh, bloated administration, taxation, forced labor, uh, acquisition of land and economic prosperity. So Jeroboam had returned Israel to Solomon's splendor, but also to the vices that had occurred. So the Lord just has to absolutely uh, discipline his people this time. But at the same time, We need to recognize that this end for Israel is not absolute, because God uh, is saying that uh, it's going to be disaster, but it's not wholesale disaster. He's always going to preserve a remnant of his people. He's going to preserve the messianic line. And so the Lord is always faithful to his people and his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's the same thing that happens in Amos's uh, prophetic work that the Lord's no quitter, he's not going to give up on his people. After judgment, he's bring about going to bring about salvation. And in fact, we see it's not merely going to be a reconstituted Israel of Jews, but it's also going to include Gentiles like us who are going to be called by God's saving name in Christ Jesus.
0: Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Pastor Roth, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Silence, says the Lord, our mouths must be stopped. There's nothing that we can say to justify ourselves. There's nothing that Israel could say at this point. They must be silent before the law of the Lord. But the Lord silences us so that he might speak his gospel, So He might give us the promise that the fallen booth of David will be restored, that Christ is coming. He has come for you and for me to be our savior to speak his word to us, his life-giving word that raises us from the death that we would know in our sin to life everlasting with him. That's what we're looking forward to. It's a joy to look forward to it with you here on Sharper Iron every morning. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.